I've been really struggling with is understanding the questions of technology and the economy. Uh, there's this narrative that's happening today about AI and jobs. And it's pretty clear to me based on history uh, that it's wrong. Uh, you know, history teaches us that if we use technology correctly, we actually increase productivity. And that the fundamental questions that we're facing today are not the question of, you know, that somehow technology will inevitably put people out of work, that this time is different. It's the question of what we have to do differently in order to get a different outcome. Uh, you know, it's not technological determinism. It's really, you know, the future is determined by the choices we make. And if you look at, at, at history, you know, of, of how we've dealt with past technological revolutions, there's been uh, kind of a social conscience that arose uh, where we decided to change the way our society works. And we seem to be in the throes of uh, this uh, determinism today. And a lot of what I'm trying to figure out is how do we change the rules of the game? Uh, how do we get people to think differently about the future? Uh, because it's pretty clear to me that there is plenty of work to be done that technology can help us with. Huge problems to be solved. And, uh, and the thing I've been most wrestling with is what's keeping us from putting today's technology to work on those problems and forcing us to spend time on so much triviality. And, and in particular, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what kind of advice could I, as a technologist, give to policymakers, you know, to people in Washington or uh, Brussels or uh, in China to say, here's what you ought to be doing. Here's what the real path of technology teaches us. And, uh, you know, here are the choices that you should be setting up for our society. This is the leadership that you should be exerting. So uh, one of the things that uh, I've spent my, you know, life doing is engaging with uh, computer platforms. I began my career uh, in the age that was dominated by Microsoft, uh, it was just throwing off uh, the, the the bonds of a, of the of the uh, IBM monopoly, and I became very strongly associated with the open source software movement, the early commercial internet, and uh, I, I was really looking at this um, sort of conflict of worldviews uh, between uh, you know a company that was increasingly you know, that started out creating a lot of value in the computer industry, and then increasingly started to capture that value for itself. Uh, I remember this one conversation I had with Walt Mossberg, uh, where he, he recounted a conversation he had with Steve Ballmer, where he said, Steve, if you guys would be 5% less greedy, the world would like you 100% more. And now I'm watching that uh, dynamic play out again uh, with Google where, for example, they are, despite their don't be evil, they're becoming the focus of antitrust investigations. Uh, did they abuse their market power? And I look at these patterns in platforms where they start out in this burst of optimism and creation of, of public value. And then gradually they start turning away from that. And I'm trying to understand why, why? And how do we actually 
build long-lasting companies that create a balance between the company and its ecosystem, uh, the platform and its ecosystem. Uh, because of course, when Microsoft uh, lost leadership, they lost it because they had taken away the opportunities for their uh, their developer ecosystem. And so those developers went over to the web, to the internet, and, and they moved to Google. And, and now we see the same thing playing out again. But most importantly, I'm thinking about how does that dynamic play out in our broader economy? Because it seems to me that the same pattern that we've seen with technology platforms is playing out today uh, in, in our broader economy where uh, you know, financial markets in particular are basically have turned into an extractive monopoly rather than this support system for our economy. Something like 85% of all corporate quote investment uh, today goes to uh, basically dividends and share buybacks. Very little to actual investment in people, uh, you know, building things in R&D. Uh, it's all going into financial gamesmanship. And I started looking at the history of, uh, you know, or really the pattern, the design pattern, if you like, of, of algorithmic systems like Google and Facebook, and started thinking about uh, the, uh, how that applies to uh, financial markets. So if you look at, at, at a system like Google, uh, they have hundreds of factors that they're taking into account, but they all have a a master objective function you know, or fitness function, uh, which is uh, we want to have relevance in our search results. We want to have relevance in our ads. And uh, when you look at Facebook, their, their fitness function, their objective function is how do we uh, uh, have content that's engaging? And we saw how that went wrong with um, fake news. And Mark and the Facebook team are trying to deal with that. They're wrestling with, okay, we had this idea about how we were going to, to uh, uh, you know, build this really engaging product, and it's been subverted. And now I look at our, uh, you know, our economic system where inequality is increasing, and I start asking myself, well, well is that too uh, something of, an, uh, of a system that's dominated by an algorithm? And what are they trying to optimize for? And I, I, I sort of realized that you know, 30, 40 years ago was the point and where we, we basically told companies uh, that there's only one thing to optimize for, and that is shareholder value. And that's the point in the 70s where you see this great divergence between the productivity, the increased productivity brought on by technology and the actual benefit to the economy, uh, and where you see inequality soar, where you see uh, people uh, doing less well than their parents, all, all this work that Raj Chetty has talked about. And so, you know, I kind of came around in some sense to think that uh, in some ways financial markets are that rogue AI that people like Elon Musk uh, have been talking about. Uh, you know, where he says, you know, he, he kind of, everybody uses, Nick Bostrom, uh, uh, Elon Musk, use these trumped up images, you know, it's like the, you know, the, uh, the AI, which has its objective function of, you know, making paper clips or, uh, and, and so it says, well, I have to do that, you know, Elon Musk used recently about, you know, the strawberry picking robot that, that says, well, you know, humans are in the way of my picking, picking strawberries. That's what I've been told. You know, that's, that's not, those aren't realistic, but what is realistic, you know, is 
a world in which you have an increasingly algorithmic financial system which is saying, hey, you know, optimize for corporate profit because it drives stock price and never mind what happens to the people, never mind what happens to society. We're in that sort of uh, AI-driven situation. The point is that it's not actually, you know, fully autonomous AI. But the question that I'm wrestling with today is what do we do about that? How do we change? How do we debug the objective function of of an increasingly automated economy, of an increasingly, uh, of, of an economy that's dominated by systems that are, to use the great quote from Wallace Stevens, without human feeling, without human meaning, a foreign song. You know, they're, they're basically, we are living in the world of, uh, 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 you know, which is dominated by a system which really disregards human value. And uh, so I, what I've been really thinking about are what are the changes? You know, when, when you look at something like fake news on Facebook, uh, you know, Mark, for example, is wrestling right now with how do we, you know, we were kind of talking about engagement and now we, we're trying to say, well, there's kind of an authentic engagement. We want more real community. We want to feel, uh, you know, we want to figure out how Facebook reinforces uh, true social bonds as opposed to the fake bonds. And, and you know, there's a bunch of work that's going on at Facebook uh, to, to, to sort of figure that out. And, and I think of, um, again, this great quote from a guy named Andrew Singer, who many years ago said to me, uh, he said that the, the, uh, the art of debugging a computer program is to figure out what you really told the computer to do instead of what you thought you told it to do. And, you know, so right now, you know, Facebook is engaged in this struggle, as is Google, say, well, what did we really tell the computer to do that wasn't quite what we meant? And we have to do that same thing in our society. You know, we had this theory that uh, if we optimized for shareholder value and corporate profit, and if we aligned the interests of shareholders, uh, in the interests of management, uh, you know, companies would prosper, the economy would prosper. And now, you know, 30, 40 years on, we're looking at it and going, well, actually, it didn't quite work out that way. And the question is, what do we replace it with? And that's what I, I'm wrestling with. You know, one of the things that I have been saying here is this we, and you might ask, who is the we? And there are a couple of uh, key ideas, again, that I'm wrestling with. I don't think I, I have answers, but the, the first one, and probably the most important one, is this collective we of what we collectively believe. Because ultimately, uh, what politicians do, what we do as a society, is a result of what millions of people tens of millions of people, in this case, actually eventually billions of people, come to believe about the way the world is and what's right. You know, so if you think back to the Middle Ages, everybody believed uh, in the divine right of kings. Uh, and right now, everybody believes in the divine right of capital. You know, it's only natural that, uh, you know, the owners of businesses, the owners of capital should try to extract as much as possible for themselves and leave society in the lurch. You know, that they should basically treat people as a cost to be eliminated. We accept that. And when I say we, I mean all of us accept it. We, we simply believe that that's the way the world works.
and we, we don't we ignore things that run contrary to that. You know, a, a really good example. Uh, you know, there are these isolated companies that are playing by totally different rules. Good example, co-op like REI. REI actually outperforms all of their public market competitors in, you know, measures in the traditional, you know, of, of you know, actual real market activity. You know, their same store, source, same store sales uh, growth is higher. Uh, their revenue per store is higher. Uh, they pay more to their employees. Uh, they're not very profitable and they don't have a stock, right? So they just kind of vanish from the world because they give all of their profits back to their customers in the form of dividends. Uh, you know, the Green Bay Packers, a storied football team owned by the fans who, who use their ownership to keep uh, season ticket prices low. And, you know, they're not any less successful than other companies. In fact, they may be more successful but they just vanish from the narrative. And so the first thing, you know, that I, I um, you know, I'm trying to get across uh, is the, the we is the collective beliefs uh, of society. You know, uh, Jeff Bezos once told a story at one of my conferences, which apparently he attributed to Danny Hillis. And uh, Danny said that, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, collective intelligence is that thing that decided that uh, orange meant decaffeinated coffee. You know, people, you know, it was basically this, you know, if you look into the history of it, it was during World War II, uh, Sanka, which was making decaffeinated coffee, gave out orange coffee pots to diners. And then that became a symbol for orange, co you know, orange coffee. Or orange uh, became a symbol for decaffeinated coffee. So, uh, you know, it's a meme. You know, uh, now, of course, everybody thinks the meme is a picture and some text on the Internet. But of course, we know we know that uh, as Richard Dawkins uh, uh, articulated it, you know, a, a meme is simply an idea that spreads uh, in the same way that a gene reproduces itself. And, you know, our world is full of ideas that spread. And I think, uh, you know, spreading new ideas about the way the world could be different. Uh, is a huge job for all of us. Uh, you know, we have this sense of inevitability. We have this sense that the way the world is today, that the story we tell ourselves about the world is, uh, is fixed, that it's somehow true. And I was shaped very early on in my life by the poetry of Wallace Stevens. And, and he, he kind of talked about reality as, as, as the quest for a supreme fiction. You know, like, what is it that we can collectively believe and that we're trying to create an aesthetic vision for each other about the way the world ought to work. And of course, this is the subject of Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. You know, he basically goes through the history of humanity as, uh, you know, the evolution of collective beliefs that allow us to act in certain ways that we were not uh, previously able to. You know, that, that religion, uh, you know, politics were all ways to get you know, larger and larger groups of people to act in concert. You know, money, it's a fiction, you know, uh, to build a, an economy, debt. The, it was all, you know, he talks about the invention of the future as, as something that you could, you know, you could invest in and move towards. And I think in a similar way, you know, we have to look at the beliefs we have uh, that limit what we can do as a society. So that's the first we that I'm talking about. But I think there's a, a much more proximate we 
which is uh, the set of you know politicians and intellectual actors of, of various kinds uh, who shape that collective consciousness. And I think one of the things that's really um, you know interestingly different today is how much that collective consciousness is now shaped by media, you know, on the internet, by Google, by Facebook. And so, uh, you know, uh, we've seen this with the, you know, the dark turn that we've taken, you know, as a result of fake news, where these systems have reinforced uh, and brought out and amplified uh, dark beliefs. And, and I think, you know, there's this, uh, I think one of the things that's somewhat dangerous is, uh, you know, we're, we're feeding the beast and there is a role for real leadership. And uh, I think it's sort of interesting. Uh, I just started reading uh, Ira Katznelson's book about uh, uh, the New Deal called Fear Itself. And uh, he talked a lot uh, about, you know, in the 30s, there was this sort of belief that, uh, you know, you know, I mean, there was literally talk America needed a Mussolini, you know, a strong leader who would, you know, knock heads and, and, and get everybody moving in the right direction. And that, that liberal democracies were not, uh, you know, able to pull it together to, to, to have concerted action and, and, you know, clear focus. And we're kind of back there today, you know, where, uh, you know, we, we think that nothing can be done through the political process. And I think that we do uh, need a kind of inspired leadership that is not just, you know, responding to, you know, micro, um, you know, targeting and, and trying to manipulate people, but really comes from, you know, a, a, a vision and is able to communicate that vision and is able to sell that vision. Uh, and get people to believe in it. You know, I mean, when you look at history, it's all about people who had amazing persuasive skills to say, we should believe in this together. You know, you think about Napoleon escaping, uh, you know, uh, from, from Elba and, and coming back. And, you know, despite having been defeated, you know, all of France rises again. This guy had an amazing ability to compel belief. And, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, you see that in today's politics. You know, Trump has been able to uh, bring out uh, the beliefs of, of an untapped set of people. And I think in a similar way, but I, I hope a much more positive way, we need leaders who can, you know, summon up a vision of a more just, a more fair, uh, a more equitable world, one that is tackling the great problems. I mean, you look at something like climate change, and uh, yes, you know, it's great to see that someone like Elon is trying to is, is Elon Musk is trying to move the ball forward, show that, um, you know, you can make a successful business in electric cars, you can make a successful business in in solar energy. Uh, uh, and for that matter, that you can go to space. I mean, Elon is a dream maker for people. Uh, you know, uh, he, he's resetting the expectations of what's possible. But I think we also need that in the political realm. And uh, the thing that I find very, uh, the one thing I find hopeful in the rise of Donald Trump is that he's broken a lot of the old uh, paradigms, a lot of the old ideas that sort of have to go in lockstep. And the question is, can we invent a new map of the world uh, that makes more sense?
you know, that reinvents uh, what's possible. And the thing that worries me a lot, and I think about this in, in the context of my history of, you know, being a classicist, you know, and you look at the fall of Rome, what happens is people lose focus and they lose will, they become reactive. And by the time the real crisis comes, they don't really have the capacity anymore to rise to it. And that's the thing I worry about. You know, you think about climate change and, and the opportunity. Uh, I mean, not only is the clock ticking and the problem getting worse and, and you know, we should have been acting sooner, but we're going to lose our capacity to respond because so much of our productive capacity is going to be just dealing with crisis. You look at what happened in Houston, what's happening in Florida. Uh, and, you know, it's just this, hey, we just got to repair. And so I don't expect change to happen in an instant. The, the question, though, is, is it happening fast enough uh, for us to avoid disaster? Because I think our current system is uh, not up to the challenges. You know, we are now struggling with this you know, great crisis of climate change. And, and long before he was worried about superintelligence, uh, uh, Nick Bostrom uh, wrote a fantastic piece about uh, 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 Fermi's paradox. And uh, he, he said something like, uh, uh, every time there's a new discovery uh, of you know, exoplanets, for example, uh, I'm, I'm elated because it means there's a chance, you know, a greater chance that there's uh, life elsewhere in the universe. But I'm also dismayed because uh, it means that the great winnowing is still ahead of us instead of behind us. You know, if, if there were very few planets and we were on one of them, then maybe nobody's out there uh, because life is rare. But if life is, com if planets are common and life is rare, then where are they? becomes a much more frightening question because it says that civilizations don't last. And I read that piece and I thought a lot about that in the context of climate change. And, uh, you know, it made me wonder about, you know, one of the possibilities might be that, uh, you know, actually civilization falls. We've used up all the cheap fossil fuel. You know, civilization falls as a, re as a result of climate change. Uh, we don't necessarily get entirely wiped out, but when we come back, that source of cheap energy, a cheap available energy is not really there. And so we don't build uh, technological civilization. You know, we get back up to maybe the level of the Victorian era, because that's what you can do with uh, the energy sources that are available. And that would be a possible answer to Fermi's paradox. But, you know, I, I kind of digress because I, I guess I'm just thinking a lot about uh, what are the interventions that we need? And I do think, uh, you know, the world is going to intervene. You know, we, we uh, you know, one of the, the big fallacies that we all live with, of course, is that the world is somehow under our control. Uh, and you look at, you know, the lesson of history, of course, is that, you uh, unexpected things happen. Things happen in different parts of the world. And, um, you know, natural disasters happen. And there's so many possibilities that could, you know, completely upset our world 
sometimes in a terrible way, but then in a, in a, in a much better way, you know, because if you look back, for example, at history, one of the things that broke the feudal system was the Black Plague. Suddenly there were fewer workers and they became much more powerful as a result. They, were, they became much more valuable to people. And, uh, you know, so there can be some really unexpected things in our future. And again, I'm not trying to say, well, let's just rely on that. Uh, but I, I think a lot about the wonderful, you know, insight from scenario planning that what you want to have is a robust strategy. That is something that can uh, th that will be useful in a, in a wide range of possible futures. And, uh, you know, we have a possible future in in which there is global conflict. We have a possible future in which uh, there is uh, natural disaster. Uh, we have a possible future in which we make a, a just egalitarian society where the world is, is, is more productive and uh, better off than it's ever been. And it has a very different economic system than we have today. All these are possibilities. And the question is, well, what should we be doing and the, the, the job that I'm trying to do right now is to articulate a narrative. You know, and in some ways it's the, the biggest narrative that I've, I've ever tried in my, my life. You know, a lot of what I've done in my career has been reframe the narrative, you know, redraw the map. And now I'm trying to really reframe this question of what do, you know, computer platforms and their rise and fall tell us about society and economies and their rise and fall. And this is wonderful uh, conclusion that Ryan Avent comes to in, in at the end of his book, uh, uh, The Wealth of Humans. And this really is that generosity is the robust strategy. You know, where we really look out for other people. Uh, uh, Bob Putnam said to me, uh, you know, the, the famous uh, sociologist, uh, you know, author Bowling Alone and many other books. Uh, we were in, in a, uh, a Markle Foundation working group about the future of the economy. And he said, every great advance in our society has come when we have made investments in other people's children. You know, and he was referring to, you know, you know universal, you know, uh, grade school education, universal high school education, the GI Bill, uh, you know, and, and these investments in the future that are, uh, not self-interested have in fact been uh, such a huge source of advance for our society and we have to actually figure out what the right investments in the future are for the 21st century right now you know the the, the problem in our politics is it's so backwards looking you know we have a set of people who are telling a story uh, about how the old days were the good old days, and we just need to go back to the old policies of, you know, uh, the great society, or we have to go back to, uh, uh, you know, some, you know, conservative ideal. And I think we have to make it new. That's this wonderful uh, line from Ezra Pound that's always stuck in my brain. You know, make it new. You know, it's not just true in literature and in art. It's in our our social consciousness in our politics. We have to sit there and we have to look at the world as it is and the challenges that are facing us in the world. And we have to throw away the old stuck policies where this idea somehow is inescapably attached to the old, to this other idea and just break it all apart 
and put it together in new ways with fresh ideas and fresh approaches. And we also really need, one of the other things that we can really learn from technology platforms and that we have to put into practice on a larger scale in uh, our economics and in our social thinking is the data-driven, data or rather data-informed decision-making. Uh, you know, in, uh, at, at Google or Facebook, they're running millions, or Amazon, they're running millions of experiments, or, you know, where they're trying new combinations of data, new combinations of software, new combinations of user interface. They're measuring what happens and then, uh, you know, responding and adapting. And what you look at in our political life is somebody frames up an idea, uh, we encode it in incredibly complex systems, uh, paper-based systems, and then they really don't get updated very often. They get updated 20, 30 years, or they get updated, uh, you know, simply by piling more stuff on. We don't kind of say, oh, that didn't work, take it out. You know, I mean, laws don't go away. They just get slightly modified and, and move forward. I'm actually reading a, a book right now about tax simplification, and it looks like every 32 years we have a big revamp of the income tax system. You know, it's, ha it's happened, uh, you know, on a pretty regular clock. And the next 32-year period is 2018. I'm not sure we'll do it right on time. But, you know, yeah, it's like, why do we tax income when one of our problems is, you know, labor income, when one of our problems is uh, that, you know, people don't have enough money, you know? Meanwhile, we're awash in capital and capital gains taxes are lower. And we have a, you know, this belief system that says, well, that's better for the economy. Well, go figure it out. And, and the point of this book, uh, like, I think it's T.R. Reed is the author. So I think we really need to refresh our politics. And I'm really hoping for, you know, some bold leadership to emerge over the next you know, couple of elections where we break the old lock of the parties and where we have fresh thinking. Because it's pretty clear that just a rehash of what went before is not going to be sufficient for the problems that we face. You know, again, I mentioned Wallace Stevens earlier. There's this uh, wonderful passage from Esthétique du Mal. Uh, out of what one sees and out of what one hears, who could have thought to make so many sensuous selves as though the midday air were swarming with the metaphysical changes that occur merely in living as and where we live. Stevens had this immense insight into the way that we, we write the world. We don't just read it. We don't just see it. We don't just take it in. Uh, he also says in Ordinary Evening in New Haven, you know, um, you know, he talks about the dialogue between you know, what he calls the naked alpha and the hierophant omega, you know, the, the, the beginning, the raw, uh, you know, stuff of reality and, and what we make of it. And, you know, we, you know, he, he also said reality is an activity of the most august imagination. And our job is to imagine a better future. Because if we can imagine it, we can create it. But it starts with that imagination. And the future that we can imagine shouldn't be a dystopian vision of robots that are wiping us out of, uh, you know, climate change uh, that is going to destroy our society. It should be a vision of how we will rise to the challenges that we face in the next century and that we will build an enduring civilization and we will build a world that is better 
for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, that we will become one of those long-lasting species rather than a flash in the pan uh, that wipes itself out uh, because of its lack of foresight. And we are at a critical moment in human history. You know, in the small, we are at a critical moment in our economy uh, where we have to make it work better for everyone, not just for a, a select few. Uh, but in the large, we really have to make it better uh, in the way that we deal with long-term challenges and long-term problems. And we can't just sort of expect somehow that the market will magically come up with solutions. We have to actually rise to the challenges uh, through political leadership, through uh, intellectual leadership, uh, through uh, you know, even religious leadership. We have to actually have a revolution, a moral revolution in ourselves where we come to believe different things about uh, what should be and what will be because we make it so.